That's right. We don't use the table. I was waiting for you, TJ. I was like, hmm, where is he with that? Welcome, guys. Welcome, those of you listening online. Welcome to the Chicago cohort, to our chapel. Uh, this week and going through the end of the year, we're going to be in a study of the book of Romans, going chapter by chapter. I'm just super excited. Uh, a favorite of many as far as books of the Bible goes. So deep, so clear about the gospel and I look forward to hearing it come from our pastor and apostle and visionary <laughs> leader and Bible expositor. Joe yes, amen, amen. Thank you, man of God of faith and power for the hour. Right back at you, amen. Let's open up to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to give you guys some of the introduction knowledge right here. My strong suit is not biblical studies in depth or in-depth biblical study. That's not my strong suit. Some people who, who do that, most of the people I know who do that are very good at history. I'm intrigued by history. I love history. I'm just letting you guys know, because you are fellow ministers now being trained up, that's not my strength. And you're going to know as you go through life, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses? So how do I prepare for an exegetical study on a book like Romans? I do just exactly what you're going to do to get the historical data. I'm going to go to commentaries. I'm going to put it all together, and then I'm going to present it to you. I'm not going to come up with anything interesting on my own. This is not anything that you couldn't find in one of the 100 commentaries or study Bibles you guys already possess or at a Christian website that the people have done that work for us already. So that's not my endeavor in going through the book of Romans. I always say those kinds of things just so you guys know where I'm coming from. But I do have a gift, don't I? My gift is preaching and making this real. That's my gift. So we're going to go through the book of Romans by God's grace now until the end of the school year, verse by verse by verse. And some that are joining us right now or listening to us on podcasts, you never maybe have done this before. So enjoy doing it with us. In your private study time, try just to read the chapter that we're going to study that week. You know, read it ahead of time or read it afterwards. It's up to you. If you prefer to read it afterwards, the notes will always be there on the app and on the website, and you can see my commentary. What's cool about this is I've taught this class in... Uh, SUM. So I'm going to be taking those notes, putting them into here. Uh, do me a favor for a minute, Oscar. Just scroll down to the actual passage of, this, uh, of the thing, of the uh, book of Romans, and then you'll see some of my commentary. Keep scrolling till you see commentary, please. Right about there. You see it? I go by verse by verse, and sometimes I'll combine a few verses, but most of the time it's verse by verse, and I add in all of this commentary. I give you some of the Greek words. I give you a little bit of cross-references and things like that. That's not what I'll be doing here. That's more of when I'm teaching, but I will be providing what we would call the commentary or the exegetical notes as I go through the series because I have them. Why not give them to you, right? So if you like the idea of reading after the sermon, well, then that will be really helpful. I kind of like that idea for you, you know. If you want to jump ahead, feel free to do so, but then you'll always be able to have the comments afterwards, you know, so whatever is best for you. Let's go back up to the introdu introduction into the notes there. When we look at the book of Romans, it's named after the city of Rome. It's written by the apostle Paul. These are the things most people already know. The date of the writing is right around 57 AD. That's about 20 years, uh, excuse me, 13 years before 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. So that's a key event to know in church history. That has not happened yet, but the Roman people have already started persecuting people, uh, the Jewish people in Rome. So you're going to learn a little bit about that and where that comes into play. Uh, the place of writing is Paul is at Corinth on his missionary journey, and he's at Gaius' house. He mentions that at the end of the book of Romans, 16 chapters and all in the book of Romans. The theme is the gospel, Romans 1.16. We'll be reading that today. The occasion from the best that we can pull out from the information that we're given is that Paul is writing a letter to the Jew and Gentile Christian living in Rome to address their theological issues. What's cool about this is that Paul's actually never been there and that this church has not been one that he or another apostle has established. This has been from the outgrowth of the Christian church. That's a unique setting. Most of the letters Paul is writing to are the once he started. And that's the same thing with Peter and so forth when you read their epistles. This one is an epistle to a church that an apostle has not gotten to. An apostle is a sent one called the plant churches. No apostle has been there as of yet that we know of, but yet there's a group of Christians there, Jew and Gentile, and Paul is writing to them so that they can have more information about the Christian faith. 
So we don't have any apostle that we know of that went there. It probably started after Pentecost as Jews came from Rome to Jerusalem for that festival. They hear the gospel, and then they go out and start the church in their hometown. Then it was probably reinforced by people coming from those smaller cities to Rome to do business and then preaching to their friends and families that were there. And Some probably would say, oh, I heard about this from my cousin who went to Pentecost a few years ago. Is that the Christian movement you're talking about, the Messiah movement, so forth and so on? Roman Catholic tradition does have that Peter eventually went there and became the bishop, the leader of Rome, and from there they developed their Roman Catholic history. You can look at their information. It's partly true, as much as we can know, it's believable, and there's part truth in it that that we should accept. The part that we shouldn't accept is where somehow Peter's a pope and that this was meant to be the establishment of a Roman Catholic church that would rule all the other churches. That didn't happen until around the six, seven hundreds, and that's where uh, they started to usurp their authority over the other bishops, the other elders over various cities, and then it didn't really come to a head until the great schism where the Orthodox church broke away, which truly would be more closer to the original church than the Roman Catholic Church because they govern themselves based on elders in various areas, not on a pope. And that was one of their biggest problems. And so now we know of the Orthodox Church and its regions. The Russian Orthodox Church is because that's the Church of Russia with their elders and leaders there, the Greek Orthodox Church and so on. That's how the early church was ruled. So if you want to get an idea of when did the Roman Catholic Church really become this entity that would fulfill the prophecy that Paul said about it, that they would forbid people people to marry and that they would forbid meat and they would turn away from God, probably the best date for that is around 1000 AD. Anytime you talk to the cults, they're always going to try to say it happened at the Council of Nicaea and these things. They're foolish. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay. Uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church developing into what it became as a superpower didn't really happen until around 1000 AD, but the Pope in his office is around five 600, depending on what you're looking for in his leadership and who's listening to him around that time. And then, like I said, it builds up into the great schism where the other guys break off and go, no, we're not going to follow you in this. And that's why there's Orthodox and there's Roman Catholics. And, and the Orthodox have a lot more Christian belief than, than the Catholics do because the Catholics from 1000 AD kept going and going and going and making up more stuff and more stuff and more stuff until you get the Reformation around the 1400s, 1500s, which is what you know, we're saying as now today's Protestants, Protestants, that the Roman Catholic Church of that time looked nothing, nothing like the ancient church. So Rome does play a little part in that because that's where they established their headquarters. And that's what we'll be learning about today is the city of Rome and the church that was there. So they bring their history back to that point. But like I said, spit out the meat, uh, spit out the bone as you chew on the meat. Okay, so the Roman Christians, here's just a little something to know about them. They were Jew and Gentile, as I said before. They met in small congregations, and they had some divisions among them. That's typical for most of the churches at that time. They weren't very large in one place. They, they were spread out in homes, and they were mostly Jew and Gentile. The next thing that we can learn about the city of Rome, I have here a PBS link if you want to take a look at that as well, is that the capital city of Rome, and it was, uh, Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire, largest city, uh, over a million citizens, multiracial, pagan in its religion, and it was the center of the Roman world for over a thousand years. And you can click on that link to learn more about ancient Rome. Let's scroll up a little bit to get some more goodies here. Click on that, please. Here's a timeline to understand Paul's life, and Paul's life gives us a great understanding of the New Testament. Scroll up. Just to the, just to the, no, no, show up just to the timeline there, please. Thank you. Just stay right where you're at. Just scroll to the time. There you go. And so when we see here, Paul's probably born around 5 AD. He's pretty much a contemporary of Jesus, maybe just a few years older than him. Uh, Jesus was probably born right around that time, 3, 3 AD. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Jesus was born around 3 BC. So he's about, um, what, eight years younger than Jesus. Sorry, eight years. I thought that said B.C. So he was, uh, but it also says it could be between 6 B.C. and 10 A.D. So the, so the best guess, he's a contemporary of Jesus. There we go. Back to that. The martyrdom of Stephen happens right around 35 A.D., and that's where Paul is, is part of that. And, but then his conversion happens shortly after that. So give or take, Paul becomes a Christian right around his 30s. Okay, Paul becomes a Christian right around his 30s and does all of this ministry here, takes his mission trips, and then right about here at the end of his, uh, at the end of his second missionary journey, the end of, uh, excuse me, at the end of his third missionary journey, rather, he's in Corinth, 
and that's when he writes Romans. So in the middle of his, at the end rather, of his third missionary journey, Acts 18 through 21, he writes the book of Romans. He then goes, at the end of his third missionary journey, he then goes to Jerusalem, gets arrested, and eventually gets imprisoned at Rome. Remember we talked about this, those of you who were for our Acts series, gets imprisoned in Rome, and he dies right before uh, 70 AD, before the destruction of Jerusalem. So Paul is a pivotal leader in the early church. He's the one who wrote the book of Romans at the end of his missionary journey. He eventually is going to go there. Let's go to the outline of the book just to give you a bird's eye view. You got everything centered around the gospel. So here's how I made it easy for you. Uh, First chapter is basically the opening. It's Paul's call to serve the gospel. Then for the next three chapters, uh, you got the heart of the gospel, justification by faith. Then from chapter 5 to 8, you got the assurance provided by the gospel. Then in chapters 9 through 11, the defense of the gospel. And then in Romans 12 to 15, the transforming power of the gospel. That's where all the practical things of Christian living come in. So all the way up until uh, chapter 12, it's all theology. And that's why this is called the theological book of Paul. Uh, More so here than any other place, he goes line upon line, detail upon detail about the gospel and and how it applies to theology. But right around chapter 12, which you guys have heard, you know, uh, be transformed in your mind, you know, make your body a living sacrifice. That's where he goes into Christian living. And then the last, basically, chapter and a half is the closing, and that's those who serve alongside of Paul and the gospel. He starts naming out all their names, giving them instructions and the things that he wants them to do. Are you guys ready to read the book of Romans? Amen. So that was my weakness. You guys ready for my strength? Amen. Here it comes in full power. Here it comes. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll just pause right here. You don't have to go to the commentary, but just follow me on the scripture, please. When we look to verse 1, Paul says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Notice that servant comes before the work of doing an apostleship. What is the greatest thing we can be in the kingdom of God? Servants. Paul always reminds the people that. He is first and foremost a servant of God. Now remember when we've talked about slavery and servanthood in the Bible, It has to have a positive connotation because it's the same word that's used of us to God. So whenever it says servants obey your masters, it cannot mean that Kuta Kinte is getting beat by Toby in the south, right? It can't mean that because I am that to my Jesus. My Jesus does not beat me and treat me that way. So there's different kinds of slaves. There's different kinds of servants. Now, some people have tried to do a word play on that and say servant is different than slave, not in the Greek. The Greek word doulos means servant, slave. It's the same word, the same connotation. So we can't just say we're servants of Christ, but not slaves of Christ. That's not doing justice to the Greek language because they use that same word for the most despicable kind of servanthood or slavehood. So when it's used this way, it is used in the redemptive sense that we are choosing to serve Jesus, our master. And as we have talked before in this church, when people lived in the culture of the Roman Empire, and had servants and masters, they were to do it as Christ is the master over them and as they are a servant to God. And that's why it said in Ephesians, when it talked about servants obey your masters, in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, or um, yeah, Ephesians chapter 6, correct? Just look at that, make sure it's a 6. That it says, slaves obey your masters, and it says, masters, do not even threaten them. Do not even do wrong to them, because you and your servant have the same master in heaven. So we notice that whatever has been put upon the culture 
in the name of Christ through slavery, if it was negative or bad or like in America and the South, it could not be blamed on Christianity. Christianity does not acknowledge that kind of, of slavery as a positive thing. And whenever that is mentioned in that light, like slave trading or taking people, stealing people, it is always considered immoral and someone cannot do that and be a Christian. Thank you, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, Paul's other letter. So he says, I'm a servant, I'm called to be an apostle. Apostle means a sent one. It is someone that is sent. So that would be very similar to how we would think about missionaries today. This is not someone that just has a special call to go around telling others what to do. Paul even said, I'm not going to build on another man's foundation. So apostles weren't supposed to go around and try to acquire other Christians. Apostles were meant to go start their own works as missionaries and develop those churches. Like I said, what makes this unique is that these weren't the people he's won to the Lord. So the reason why I think he breaks his standard protocol where he says, I don't do my apostleship on anybody except the ones I've won to the Lord and planted. He said, I don't build on another man's foundation. It's because they didn't have an apostle. Some people will try to be an apostle by acquisition. They'll try to take you over and be, their, you know, be your apostle. That's not the way it's supposed to work. The way it's supposed to work is apostles are disciples who are sent out to go start new ministries. Now, some people have tried to say that there's only the 12 apostles. Well, there's a problem with that because Paul's an apostle and he wasn't one of the 12. Now, I happen to believe that God wa- God, Paul was God's replacement for the uh, Judas, the loss of Judas. So instead of casting lots, I believe the disciples were supposed to wait, and God was going to pick his 12th one. Why did there need to be 12? Because those were the prophecies given to the Israelite tribes. That's why there was 12 tribes. And then Jesus said their names would be written on the foundation stones of New Jerusalem, and that these 12 uh, disciples would be the 12 governor leaders over the new kingdom. So there must be a 12th one brought there. Did it come through the casting of lots from Matthias, or did it come divinely from Paul? I believe it came from Paul. But People may give me credit for that and say, well, technically there's 13 or whatever, but after that there's no more. Well, the Bible says, and we'll get to Romans 16 when we get there, but that there's other apostles. And it says Andronicus and Junia are outstanding among the apostles. They're one of them. And so people in church history have tried to make Junia, Junius a man. Catholics tried to do that because it was clear that they were apostles and they didn't want a woman apostle. And then over time, especially in our generation with people like Daniel Wallace and others, have tried to translate translate that to mean they were just a married couple that were known among the apostles to be good people. But it doesn't say that. Craig Keener and others take time to develop the Greek and show you in the grammar that it doesn't mean that. And then the, the stamp that proves is, is John Christendom, the church father, clearly says these, that this couple, this man and woman, must have been so amazing as apostles that they were outstanding even among them. So he translates it and gives us the commentary that settles it. And that's where we should be on that. So just like the other fivefold ministry gifts, apostle is just a gift, and he has received it, and now he's using it. God can use you as an apostle to go start a church and to build up ministers in that place to go start other churches. That's the, the way that an apostle is going to do that, just like God can call up prophets and pastors and teachers, etc. So we'll get more into that as, as he talks about the gifts a little bit later. Then he brings up the important part for why this is happening. He set apart to be a servant. He's an apostle. Why? For the gospel of God. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, his coming again. That's the message. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So this is what all the prophets are pointing towards. That's why we use the prophets when we preach, because they're talking about the things we're living now. It's not like that Old Testament stuff's not relevant to us. That's how they preached, and that's how we preach. We preach with the prophets and their message towards the gospel. So as I showed in one of the servants yesterday, people in the Old Testament, look towards the cross. We now look back at the cross. Who's in the middle on the cross? Jesus. Jesus brings the Old Testament and the New Testament together fulfilled in him. And what image am I making right now? A cross. There's a helpful way to think of the new covenant and old covenant working together. Of course, we're not keeping the law of Moses and those things. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus, but all that the law was pointing to that's now fulfilled in Jesus, we can now look back in the law and preach about it. So that's why we're Christ-centered, gospel-centered in all of our preaching. We see Christ in the law. We see Christ in the old covenant, Christ in the prophecies. And that's why I'm doing a sermon series right now on Thus Says the Lord, on the prophets, a word from the prophets, because we should look back at all the prophets and go, yeah, they're talking about my Jesus. Why are they talking about my Jesus? Because Peter clearly said they had the spirit of Jesus guiding them. 
And who is Isaiah and other prophets seen? Like Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, he's seen nobody but Jesus. Because no one has seen the Father and lived, but we've always interacted with the Son as a people. He was the one in the Garden of Eden. We were made in his image. The Son was there with Abraham in Genesis 18, the patriarchs. The Son was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Son is in the Bible. He's of ancient times. He's been there with us throughout human history. Now notice this because we talked about Psalm 2, and I love when the Bible vindicates itself when we're learning it, and it does it without us trying to force it. When did I say Jesus was appointed as the kingly son, kingly son of the father of Psalm chapter 2? When did that happen? At his resurrection. Did you guys notice that when we read it here? It says it so clearly, and it's like, man, I wish I would remember this last week because it would have said it even more clearer. Regarding his son, now notice he's always been his son. The son has always preexisted. The son is the son. But when the son came in the flesh to his earthly life, he was a descendant of David. So now he comes as a man in the flesh, a descendant of David. So when is that God-man going to be appointed the kingly son, ruler over all the earth? It says, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection excuse me, his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now notice, when he says Jesus is our Lord, that is not just like landlord. You'll notice, especially when we get to Romans 10, that when you confess Jesus as Lord, you're confessing Jesus as Yahweh Lord. The Lord here is not a generic landlord, boss, master, because it can mean that, but Paul attributes Jesus as Lord in the same way that the Greek uh, that the Jewish people translated the Greek in the Septuagint, the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, when they would use kurios for Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew for Lord. They would put the word kurios there to honor the name, to not blaspheme it, to not even say it. When he's saying Jesus is Lord, he's using it that way. And I'll show you that when we get to Romans 10. It's clear. And so when a Jehovah Witness says Jesus is Lord, but he's not God, there's a problem there now. Because if Jesus is Lord and not God, then we'll say the same thing about the Father. The Father is God and not Lord then. But isn't the Father Lord? Isn't he Yahweh? Come on. So if Lord there doesn't mean Yahweh, then the Father's never called Yahweh really in the New Testament. It seems as if Paul takes the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, the Lord thy God, and now gives the Lord to Jesus the Son and gives God the, to, to the Father. That's how he uses their titles with their names. The Father is God, Jesus is Lord, and he's playing off of the Shema that says, The Lord thy God, he is one. Does everybody get that? He does that in places that we won't be studying in Romans, but that is how we believe he uses those terms to give divinity to both the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit is brought up quite often as well, even in this passage, the Spirit of holiness, which we know is the Holy Spirit. And so the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God, all Lord, but there's not three lords, there's not three gods. There's one God, one Lord, and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But Father and Son are the conversation, are the description, mostly in the New Testament. Now, somebody may say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Doesn't he feel bad? No, he's the one inspiring it all. The Holy Spirit is the one inspiring. The Holy Spirit is the one who raises Jesus from the dead, the Bible says, as well as he raises himself. So they work together in unison, and the Holy Spirit is always about giving attention to the Father and the Son. And the Father is always about giving attention to the Son, and the Son's always about giving attention to the Father. Isn't that beautiful how they work together in the Trinity? Verse 5, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. So Calvinists will like to use the book of Romans to try to prove in places like Romans chapter 8 and 9 that God is the one who picks who's going to be saved and he overlooks the rest to be damned. Right here in Romans chapter 1, he tells us how salvation comes. God is doing the calling, but how does it come? It comes to the Gentiles to the obedient. Those who are obedient from what comes from faith. 
So, yes, faith is a gift. We can't do it on our own. We're not saying we save ourselves or give ourselves faith. But just like life is a gift and it's what you do with it that matters, it's your choice to what you do with it, faith and salvation is a gift and it's up to you to be obedient to it and for you to respond and do the right thing with what God is telling you to do. So listen to it again. It says, that he gave us this grace and apostleship to call. So he's saying, I'm calling all the Gentiles to what? The obedience. He's calling all Gentiles to what? The obedience. That comes. Where does obedience come from? Comes from faith. Comes from faith. So does God give us all the call? Yes. But does everybody become, quote, unquote, the called? No, the call is sent out to everybody. Many are called, but few are what? Chosen. So for you to become the chosen or for you to become the called, you have to respond to the call in faith first and then in obedience because obedience comes from faith. Now, they may say back to us, well, do you generate your own faith? Because Romans is going to teach us in Romans 3, there's none that are good. Nobody can even do anything good, let alone have faith. No, it's not us. Romans 10 is clear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So do I give myself faith? No. So think of it like this. Leighton Flowers gives us this great example. Soteriology 101 is his podcast, always combating Calvinist lies. Here, here it is. It's very simple. Can I call the president right now? Do I have the ability? No. Am I good enough to get the number right now? No. But can I be obedient to answer a call from him? Yes, I can respond to his call that, in a, that I wasn't able to respond to. The calling gives us the enablement. When you hear the word, you're now enabled to stop being that wicked sinner of Romans 3. You're enabled to hear the gospel, have faith, and believe. So your faith is not yours in origin, but it is yours by possession in what you do with it. So we don't give ourselves faith. We don't give ourselves ability. We don't give ourselves the number of the president, but we can respond to the call of the president. We can act in obedience to what the president gives us. And of course, that example is only just an example, but the gospel tells us that it's more than just receiving a call like through our ears and talking, that something happens when we hear the word of God, that the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness, judgment. And if we receive that and are obedient to that, salvation comes. That's exactly how it says it comes. Does it say he just picks you out and says, now you're saved? No, it says we, we were called to call. So it's like I received a call to call you, the Gentiles, to what? Obedience. That comes from faith for his name's sake. Now, even Paul said, I didn't have to be obedient to the heavenly vision I was given. He said, but I was obedient in the book of Acts. So sometimes people say, well, could Paul have resisted God? Anybody could resist God. Even Paul said he could resist God. Can people shipwreck their faith? Absolutely. Paul talks about people shipwrecking their faith. But is it the, the faith that God gave them that's at fault? They had junky faith and that's why it wrecked? No, God gave it to them when they heard the word of God. And at one point they responded to it positively. Positively, and now they've stopped fighting the good fight of faith. And by doing that, they shipwrecked their faith. Amen? Very simple. I mean, how we can get to Romans 8 and 9 and confuse that point is beyond me. But we'll make sure to correct it when we get there. Amen? And so then it says, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So how did they become the called? They responded to the calling. Now, does God know who responds to the calling ahead of time? Yes. So can God determine to save those who have faith and obedience to him? Yes. So when we do that, we are predestined. So God knows what you're going to do beforehand. And that's why when we go to the, the scripture in Romans 8 that says, those he foreknew, he also predestined. What comes first, predestined or foreknown? Foreknown comes first. Well, what is God knowing? Somebody may say, well, he's just knowing his own will. Well, then that's playing checkers with yourself. What is he foreknowing? He's foreknowing all the decisions he's allowing us to make. And then now some people say, well, God allowing us to have free will takes away from his sovereign will because if he doesn't have the only sovereign will in the universe, then we can thwart his will. And that is stupid. 
That is a stupid argument against God's sovereignty. Isn't God big enough to allow you to play checkers however you want, but still big enough to beat you at the game? Smart enough to beat you at the game? Does he have to play by himself to win the game? Does he have to eliminate your will so that his will can always be done? No, God's will can work within the bad decisions of your will for his will always to be done. And you can just think about that in checkers. Ah, I wanted you to move there. Bop, bop, bing, bing, bump. Now the game's over, right? So God says, you want to be wicked and do this and that? You think you can't stop me? You just set me up for judgment day. I mean, it's that simple. So here's, here's the way I like to say it. And A.W. Tozer said it's similar to this. It's not that God determined that our will could thwart his will but he determined with his will to allow us to have free will so that his will could be done in glory of him and for our responsibility. Think about that. It's his glory to allow us to make our own decisions and then for us to be responsible for his decisions. So in his sovereign will, he determined that we would have a will and his will would still be the one that ends in the end, that comes out in the end. But it's up to us if his will is done in our lives then, so we'll be responsible to getting into the will of God. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. So you could study that more as well. He says, to all who in Rome who are loved by God, called to be his holy people, the word saint there is what I like, uh, same word holy people, hagios, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's standard greeting, grace and peace. Irene is peace, uh, having peace through the storm, tra- tranquility, grace, caras, caris rather, uh, the uh, you know unmerited favor, favor of God, the blessings of God. And then he, he uses those titles he'll use in primarily all of his letters. The Father is God, Jesus is Lord. And if somebody goes, like I said, oh, Jesus can't be God because only God is the Father, then you go, okay, well, then God can't be Lord then. And what does it say all throughout the Old Testament, you know? The Yahweh said this, Lord said this, the Lord said this. So you got a problem. The Lord thy God is one. So either you now have to say Paul is giving the word Lord a totally different definition than the entire Old Testament meant Lord to be, or Lord means Yahweh. So Jesus is Yahweh. He's our boss. He's our master, but he is our very Yahweh. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's read now the next passage. Verses 8 to 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith, whose faith? Your faith. See, now you're in possession with it. If it was God's faith and God's faith alone that saved you and always kept you, then why does he give us the possession of it? It would say God's faith. I'm thankful for God's faith in you. He's just always drawing you to himself, and that's just the way it is. You're his little robot. No, it says your faith. Why? Because just like any gift God gives us, you take possession of it. Now it's up to you what you do. That's why he says in the Bible, like Jesus, he says, this one has little faith, this one has great faith. If the Calvinist is right and we're all given faith and saved the same way, then why is there a great faith and a little faith? Come on, somebody. Great faith and little faith is determined on what you're doing with the words you're receiving. That's why it says in Peter, add to your faith these different qualities. And if you do these things, you will keep yourself from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of God. Isn't that what it says? And you'll, be, and you'll keep yourself from forgetting you've been forgiven of sins. So add to your faith these different qualities. So I'm going to start again here, help, help myself not to preach. Okay, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, and remember when we just says God like that, he's going to be referring to the Father. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Notice that. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I may have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. 
For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And that comes from where? The righteous shall live by faith. What book? What prophet? Habakkuk. And we've already been through Habakkuk. And so there goes Paul preaching the Old Testament again through the revelation of Christ. Beautiful. So sometimes people talk about dispensationalism, meaning that in different dispensations, God gave different laws for people to follow and different requirements for salvation. That is not true. The dispensation of God's salvation from beginning to end has always been faith. Now, can you look at different time periods throughout God's history, like the Adamic time period when they're in the garden, yes, and then the time period of the patriarchs, and then the time period of the law of Moses, and then the time period of Jesus, and then now the time period of the church, and then soon the 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 millennial reign, and then the uh, the forever kingdom of God. You know, yes, you can kind of look at those time periods, but what does the Adamic time period have right here at the beginning, all the way to the end when we're in the new heavens and earth? The righteous shall live by what? Faith. It's always been faith. So when you're talking to people, don't naively assume that the Old Testament was about works and the New Testament is about grace. It's always been about grace through faith. The problem was, and you see Paul addressing this in places like Galatians and a little bit here in Romans as we'll get to it, is that they're looking to the law instead of Christ. That's their problem. Instead of God, the Father, as it was being revealed to them. That's their problem. It's not the law. It's not that the law was meant to do that. The Bible clearly says what it was meant to do. It was meant to show you your mistakes. So you would reach out to God through the sacrificial code and receive grace and have faith to believe in him. That's why Hebrews starts off by saying the Jews missed it. Hebrews 2 and 3 says they missed it, the Jewish people, because of unbelief. And now you need to have belief. You need to have faith. So it's always been about faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just go back here to the beginning, verses 8 and onward. Paul thanks God for their faith. Remember, it's given to them, but it's up to them what they do now. Paul talks about him preaching the gospel. It's about Jesus. He's a witness. Uh, He's witnessing to them about how much he prays for them at all times. And so if Paul's saying he's praying at all times for all people, what does that mean? He's always got them on his mind and in his heart, okay? He says then that he wants a harvest among the Gentiles. So he primarily saw his call to the Gentiles, though he always honored the protocol to go to the Jews first, and we should still be doing that, praying for the Jews, because they are a special people, and we'll get to that in Romans 11. God has not abandoned them. The promises of the Old Testament still apply to them, but they must come through Christ. They can't go into the promised land without Christ. They can't be saved without Christ. But do they still have promises as it relates to their nation? Yes, and they have not failed. And we'll talk about this in a little bit. We don't believe in uh, replacement theology, that the church replaces the, the Jewish people now in all those promises of the Old Testament. So every time you see a Jewish promise, you go now in the New Testament, that's for the church. No, as I've taught you before, we see the church in that promise because what? Romans 11 says we're grafted in with them. So whenever he's talking to them, he's talking to us. Take, for example, when they left Egypt, the Bible says a great multitude went with them from the other nations. So it was Egyptians and other kinds of slaves that they had around at that time because the Jewish nation wasn't the only slaves they had, right? So the Bible says when they're getting out, a great multitude of other nations come with them and say, we're getting out too. Well, guess what? Over time, they became part of Israel. And you can see people like that. Caleb was not an Israelite. Caleb wasn't an Israelite. And you can see different nations joining with them and having places in their their lives. Like uh, Jericho. Jericho, pagan nation. Who gets saved from Jericho and joins the nation of Israel? Rahab, exactly. And I can go on and on and on and name these other pagan people that come and join with the nation of Israel. Does that ever mean they are an Israelite? Well, not by genealogy, but by marriage and that time onward they could be, yes. But not at that time, not at the moment they joined with them. They're still from that other nation. That's why it says Caleb was from this nation. And so it's the same thing with us. We get engrafted in. Right now, we're not Jewish people. We're not. But after the age of the millennial reign and God rules and reigns over the heavens and earth for all of eternity after that, we will be the Jewish saved 
called out people. We'll just be one people then. But now until then, now until human history ends, the church, all the Gentiles with the Jewish people are supposed to be not not separated, but supposed to be known from the nations they come from because the Bible actually says that in Revelation, all the nations there are proclaiming God, right? So there's a plan there for all the nations to be represented with Israel. But then after that, we get melded into them forever and ever and ever, amen? And so that's just why it says all the nations are there. Not one nation, because if there was replacement theology, we would all be considered Israel now, wouldn't we? See, Revelation contradicts re- uh, replacement theology because it says nation. So we're known by our nation that's there. Okay. The next thing that he says is that he's been planning to come to them. Now he is going to come to them by, by the way of chains in jail because he's going to get arrested in Jerusalem, and then he's going to appeal to Caesar because he knows the Jews are trying to set him up in the courts. So he's going to appeal to Caesar, and that's how he's going to eventually get there and preach to them from jail. Uh, the next thing that we see in verse 16, uh, verse 14 rather, is that he sees his obligation is to preach the Greeks and non-Greeks. And so basically what that means is Gentiles and non-Gentiles. The word Greek and Gentile can kind of be switched around in the New Testament a little bit here. Uh, sometimes Greek can just be a generic word for heathen, Gentile people. And heathen to them was non-Gentile, uh, non-Jewish people. And so he says also to the wise and to the foolish. And that's why he says, I'm eager to come preach to you. And then verse 16 should be the, the theme of all of our lives, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So people cannot be saved unless they hear the gospel. We're going to hear that in Romans 10. How can they hear unless a preacher is sent, sent? So we believe in connect, mentor, send, get connected to the cross, then get mentored with the cross and be sent out to share the cross. That's what you're doing right now in Bible college. So never be ashamed of the gospel, because as people are hearing it, they make their choice to be obedient to it. Amen? And the Bible says it's first for the Jews. So we follow that protocol. And then to the Gentile. And then it says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So that's where we talked to the black Hebrew Israelites, and we saw one out there last uh, Saturday, is do we tell, do, is it right when they tell us that the righteousness is found in the law? No, the righteousness is found in the gospel. So we tell them, look to the gospel, not to the law. If you want to keep the law, go ahead, try to keep all of it and see if you can save yourself. You can't. If you break one, the Bible says it's like you broke them all. Because think of it like being a chain of 613 links, you break any one of those chain links, if you're being towed by a car, the car no longer tows you. You guys with me? Or if I'm going water skiing or something, I got 613 notches of that, that rope that I'm holding on to. Any one of those notches break off, I'm gone, right? So you either keep all of it or you admit you can't keep none of it and you find your fulfillment in Christ. That's exactly what the New Testament teaches, okay? So let us not even now try to go back into the law and think we're saving ourselves. The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So do we keep laws now? Yes, the law of Christ. The law of Christ is the new covenant law that he has given to us through his apostles. Some of it is found in the Old Testament. How do we generally look at that? We look at that through the principle of the moral laws, the moral laws of the Old Testament accompanying us in the New Testament. Because it's not like God changed and says, now you can lie, thou shalt lie. It's not like he changed and he said, now you shall murder. Well, those moral laws, like homosexuality and things like that, are still abominations to God in the New Testament. How do we know that? Because they're all reiterated. They're all reiterated. Now, there's one that's unique, and I I happen to believe that tithing offering comes in with that as well. And I believe giving is a part of the moral law. And the reason why I believe that, not the Sabbath, is because the Sabbath says it's fulfilled, but giving continues on. And I'll show you that at another time if I can. But the, but the giving also predated the law of Moses. So uh, Abraham's giving a tenth before Moses was ever commanded to tell the people to give a tenth. And God is judging Abel uh, and Cain based on his bad offering when it says uh, Abel brought the first fruits, which I, which I believe was a representation of the tenth. So I believe because it's not fulfilled, and there's no clear de- declaration of that being fulfilled, and that Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, he just summarizes all those laws of giving because some Sometimes people say, why don't you keep them all? He summarizes them, tithes and offerings. I believe it continues in. And then the Bible talks about Jesus saying to the Jews, you do this well, tithing off all this stuff. And then in the book of Hebrews, it says now in the present tense, Jesus receives the tithe. And we know even if they were doing it in the temple, as maybe they were still trying to be good Jews at that time because it's written in Hebrews, we now know that the tithe belongs to Jesus. And I apply that to the New Testament because it's a New Testament book. Hebrews says the tithe is given to Jesus now, like it once was given to Melchizedek. So that's why I carry on that, and to me it's a moral law, tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Amen. So it's up to you how you see that, but that's how we see it here. 
Now let's read the last and final passage, which of course is the biggest with the least amount of time. And it also raises the most complicated questions. Here we go. The wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women who were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They're disobedient to their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Did he not just describe our culture? This book, the Bible, describes our culture better than the newspaper. This is the entire outline of your culture today, sadly. But praise be to God, he left us with the witness. Amen? The same way Paul applied it to the Roman culture of his day, and the backslidden nature of the Jews, who many of them were following that pagan way of living, he is now saying to us today, this is what all worldly people are like. Everyone at one point has known God in some way, and by that we call that general revelation that all people are without excuse. That's why our apologetic method comes from this passage known as presuppositional apologetics, that we believe no one that can think and reason is without the conscience that promotes godliness and the truth of God's character. So if you have a conscience and you can know yourself, you can know your God by looking at how you have failed yourself and the moral laws inside and by looking at the creation on the outside. Anyone who then violates their inner conscience and created order then is given over to a depraved mind and will suffer God's wrath. Most of mankind has not reached out for God, as the book of Acts says, reaching out for him that they might find him, seek and ask and knock. Most of them continue in their sin, hence the reason for all the ungodliness in all cultures. So if people say, how did, or they ask the question, well, what about the people in the jungle? What about them? Well, first question is, how did they become people in the jungle separated from God's knowledge? You go back to human history, and we see that from the flood, it started over again with eight people, Noah's family, and from there, they did wickedness and isolated themselves from the people of God. And from there, they followed their own pagan traditions. Now, does God speak to them just like he speaks to us? Absolutely. I've mentioned the book here, Eternity in Their Hearts, where it talks about missionaries going to these remote places, and they find that they already have in creation, understanding in creation and in their conscience, the basics of, of the Bible. Now the question is, can they go to heaven without knowing about Jesus and those kinds of things? I tend to believe yes, but I believe it's not God's intention for them to go without a witness. We're supposed to go there and confirm it. But I believe they can be saved by the light of their conscience. Now, some people don't believe that. And that itself shouldn't be something we should spend much time arguing over. Because there's really not a lot said about it. 
There's not a lot said either way. There's no place where we know that people are sentenced to hell without having an ability to do otherwise. All the places we see being judged, like Sodom and Gomorrah, the nations like Nineveh, I mean Babylon, etc., they're all given witness of some kind. Those are the Bible stories. We're never told what happens to the 10-year-old in India while Jesus is alive, because there's India at that time. We're not told about nations like that. We're only given a reference like this, and the reference basically says they know, and then they are suppressing. So that means if they know, then that means they can receive, because we will get to chapter 2, and let me just read it now. Chapter 2 says, in verse 13, well, let's go to verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. So that means if you've never known it to be a law, you'll still perish because the law of Moses wasn't given to you, but you had the law of your conscience. So you can't say, I didn't have the law. You'll have the law of your conscience. That's what he means by those who don't have the law will perish. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. So if you knew it and you didn't do it, that's how your judgment's going to come. Now it says, for It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey it who will be declared righteous. Remember that once again, it does away with Calvinism, shows that it's based on our obedience to it. Verse 14, indeed, now watch, when Gentiles who do not have the law, the law of Moses, they have it what's in their conscience and they see it in created order, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. So they have to live by what they know in themselves to be right. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their what? Written on their hearts. They know not to murder. They know not to do the moral things, uh, break the moral laws. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times what? Defending them. So it's not all negative. It's not all negative. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. So... I tend to believe, like most Baptists, good Baptists, non-Calvinist Baptists, people like Leighton Flowers, people like Adrian Rogers, a lot of other people of the past, Billy Graham, I believe with Baptists that children belong in the kingdom before the age of accountability, though we don't know when that is, but God is merciful to them of all nations, and then those who grow out of childhood age who have not heard the gospel, the unreached people, are given opportunities to respond to creation and their conscience and be defended on judgment day, and God will do what's right. Now, let's just take the other perspective. Non-Calvinists and Calvinists take this way. Some Assembly of God agree with Calvinists in this way. But Calvinists are very strict in this. Calvinists believe that if the child dies before the gospel, then that means they were eternally doomed from the womb. And that's why they died, because they were never going to receive it anyway. They're already in hell. That's what John Calvin believed. And if nations didn't hear Jesus, that's because they were never going to believe in Jesus, and so they were doomed anyway. But there are some non-Calvinists that take their same position without having the same foundation of Calvinism, which Calvinism is God chooses, right? So then they have to believe that if you never were chosen to accept Jesus, then that means you were doomed from the womb because there's no other way to be saved, right? So that's, that's their foundation. That's where it leads, and, and many of them own up to that, okay? But there are non-Calvinists, like Assembly of God ministers that I've, I've, I've been with, like Brother Anthony, and I don't know if he still feels this way, who just believe unless you confess Christ, you're not saved. And for the children, he says, I don't know for sure, Okay. So the nations who are now perishing without Christ are just going to hell because we haven't gone to them and the blood will be on our hands, but it's still their responsibility because Romans chapter 3 then condemns the whole world under sin and no one's defended in their conscience. But I believe in Romans chapter 2, by him saying it there, it doesn't take away from Romans chapter 3 when he starts condemning all of mankind because once again, it's up to them whether or not they live out in their sin or they live according to their conscience, the knowledge they've been given. Uh, A good middle ground could be that whenever someone in their conscience is doing the right thing, God sends them more revelation from angels and visitations and dreams, and that's why it's important in a lot of those cultures to have those things. So they do eventually get the gospel or some kind of law message, but it has to come through the dreams and visions of them reaching out to God. I don't know. I I think that's pushing it a little bit. I would just rather say that I believe this gives us hope 
that the unreached people groups can still be saved. Now, some people say, mockingly, mostly the Calvinists will say this back to us, well, then never go out and reach them then because once now they hear the gospel and reject it, now we know for sure they're damned. See, that's stupid because I believe those in their conscience who have been drawn to it when they hear the gospel receive it. And those who have already been rejected will continue to reject it. So it's our job to go give them the name of Jesus and the message of the Lord so they can grow in their wisdom and knowledge and break the generational curse. So whatever their argument is, it's just stupid. You know, It's like, well, just leave them alone because they have a better chance of being saved by their conscience. No, they don't. You have a better chance of being raised in the church and taught the things of God. That's the best chance you can get, more information, more opportunity. So that's just a silly argument you may hear every now and then. Now, going back to this, obviously, this is a big passage about homosexuality. That's how we know the moral laws of Leviticus in the Old Testament aren't done away with in the New Testament. These passages reiterate it that it's shameful. Now, here are some arguments that people will use against this. They'll say, I am a Christian homosexual, not a pagan pederast. Notice the difference. They'll say, this is against pagans who started hurting children, and that's the problem with it. Paul never knew of a same-sex loving relationship. They were pagans. They're handed over to this. So it's kind of like jailhouse rape. They'll point to Sodom and Gomorrah and say, their real problem wasn't that they loved another se- the same sex. Their real problem was they wanted to rape angels. They wanted to rape children. They were crazy like that. The Bible doesn't leave room for that. Though that may be true, these pagan nations became depraved to the point of child rape and pederasty. The Romans and Greeks were about that, just like the modern homosexual movement is about that today. And you can look up the founders of the modern homosexual movement. Most of them in the LGBT community were pederasts as well. And that's part of why the agenda is now moving towards all of this same sex uh, and uh, trans transgender stuff with children and cross-dressing as Lauren and others have been putting up on Facebook. But go back and just understand there's no way around this. It's not just pederasty. It's not just gang rape. Look at what it says. It says in verse 24, God gave them over in sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So it's mutual. It's not rape. So rape is gone now. Now it's one another. It's mutual. Now watch this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and, and worshiped the creation rather than the creator. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. So the very lust was shameful. It's mutual. It's shameful. So it's not just for children. Now it says women exchange natural relations for unnatural ones. So now we're told clearly that it's mutual, so it can't be rape. You have to take that out. It's not pederasty, things like that, but it's now unnatural. What makes it unnatural? Women and men watch it in the same way the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another, not children, Bible could have clearly have said that, but men with other men, one another, of the same kind, in other words. That's what another means, another. I have, I, have two, I have one hamburger and I have another hamburger. It's the same. I have one man that wants to lust and get it on with the man. I have another man that lusts and wants to get on with the man. That's what, it's mutual. It's, it's not rape and it's adult consenting and it's unnatural. Unnatural to what? The created order. So, now, should we treat homosexuality and those who deal with these issues differently? No, but we have to teach them that it does degrade the mind differently. Because what does it do? It goes against natural order. So those who have unnatural desires shouldn't think of themselves worse than those who have natural desires and still sin. But here's, here's, the, here's the message, is that you have to be aware of the danger of the unnatural desire. Because the unnatural desire can lead to other unnatural acts. So take, for example, you have a man that's addicted to pornography. He'll go to the same hell as as a lesbian, gay, or whatever, right? But the one addicted to pornography, it's not unnatural to desire the woman. The one that's in homosexuality is doing something that's unnatural. And so what the unnatural, what I think it does, it says it degrades them. It takes away the actual order of their life. That's what I think it means. I don't think it means like you become more demonic and all of that. I just think like you lose the natural order. You're out of order more. So the guy looking at pornography is still going to help, but he's not as out of order, naturally speaking, out of what's in the world. Because even then, he could bring natural order, uh, bring family through, through what he's doing. 
and the lesbian gay cannot. And God is concerned about us populating the earth. He said, be fruitful and multiply. That's all it is. So don't think like your mind is so disordered because you have same-sex attraction and you're just the worst of all creatures. No, what it's really just meaning is your, your way of thinking, of, if you give into those acts, your way of thinking of the order is worse than someone doing another kind of sin. So he is clear here. It is, there is a worseness. There is a, let me just read it for you again. The Bible says, because of this, he gave them over to shameful lust, okay? Now, is all lust shameful? Yes, but not in the same way, and some have a greater penalty, and that's why it says, and they received in themselves the due penalty for this error. And what's the penalty? And some people try to say, well, AIDS is the penalty, and all of this. No, 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 no. Most commentaries believe, what is the penalty? Not having children, not having family, not building a culture on God's word. So it leads to a worse cultural result. If all men are looking at pornography, the culture can still have children and move on, right? If everybody's living like Sodom and Gomorrah, can we have children in natural order? That's why there's a certain judgment that's brought to this kind of sin. But even Paul in another place says, all sexual sin, now watch this, All sexual sin is on itself another level as compared to all other sins. So there's like sins down here, and then there's sexual sins, and then there's homosexuality where it comes in severity. And murder, out of all the other sins down here, is on a higher level. So you got all these sins you can do to people, and then you got murder, that's really bad. And then you got sexual immorality, that's really bad. And then you've got... Uh, homosexual, lesbian type sex, that's really bad, but all going to the same hell facing punishment, but what makes the levels of bad worse? It's what it's doing to a culture. It's what it's doing to a people. And some may say, well, is murder as bad as, uh, as homosexuality? And, and I would say yes, you know, so we'd have to make the graph kind of go up and down like that, you know. But he's very clear that this is going to receive a judgment from God and it's a depraved mind. But then he attaches to it all these other things that these people do. So furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind, and they did all of these other things too. So if you're doing things like greed and you're doing things like hating uh, God or you're insolent, you're going to be judged along with everybody else. Amen? Okay. Wonderful. I think we got through it. You guys got to start your class. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Romans chapter 1. May we learn from it and abide by it. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Love you guys.